When I was a young man, several decades ago, I played tennis with a college professor from the local universities, Wayne, Nebraska, and I asked him about his faith and found out that he was not a believer. And I tried to talk to him about reasons to believe in God, and, but to be honest, I felt unequipped to do it. And he gave me some reasons he didn't believe in God, and I just had a hard time refuting some of those reasons. And I knew then and there I had to be better prepared for ministry, and so I did some learning and some more reading on this, and it also spurred me to get more education. That's one of the reasons I came to Illinois, so I could go to Lincoln Christian uh, Seminary. Then in seminary, I went through another crisis of faith just a few years later, and I started asking myself, do I believe this? Is this Christianity stuff really true? I had been taught it since childhood. I'd always accepted it. But what if it's not real? We've all been duped. Is there really a God? And if so, how do we know if Christianity is the truth? So I did more studying, more reading. And to make a long story short, when I became convinced of this truth, I had to give my life to it. There is nothing more important. There is nothing more vital than doing the work of the kingdom of God if this is true. But if it's not true, the Apostle Paul says it. He says we are to be pitied above all people. I mean, we preachers, we're the most miserable people in the world. If this Jesus stuff is false, why would you go to church? And why would you pray? It's just all a waste of time. Now, last week we started this series called I Have a Friend Who Says, and it's some of the tough questions that people have about believing God, questions that really can be stumbling blocks for faith, questions that maybe some of you have had. And when these questions do get answered, they can turn your life around. And it did for me. First Peter 3.15 is the theme verse. It says, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Be honest, I wasn't prepared to answer questions from that college professor. So today we're looking at the question of science. I have a friend who claims that science has disproved Christianity. And I'm going to start with a quote from C.S. Lewis, his book, Mere Christianity. He says, ever since men were able to think, they've been wondering what this universe really is and how it came to be. Now let me stop there. Lewis writes, since men have been able to think, why does he say just men? It's because women have always been able to think, right? Ha, okay. Anyway, this material is 70 years old, and so in some spots the language is a little bit dated, but he's still brilliant. He goes on and writes, very roughly, two views have been held. First, there is the materialist view, and he says, people who take this view think that matter and space just happen to exist and have always existed, and nobody knows why. Just kind of happened by a sort of fluke to produce creatures like ourselves who are able to think. Life and the universe and creation, it's a random event, can't be explained, it's kind of a giant machine that just appeared. And then the other view is the religious view, and according to that, it is what is behind the universe is more like a mind, there is a purpose behind it. And Lewis also says, don't think of one of these views as old and the, one, the other as new. These have been around for as long as people can think. So don't be fooled into thinking the materialist view is a new one or a progressive one because, because of science. It's not. But some people do wonder, has science proven what Lewis calls the materialist view, that the universe is more like a machine and God does not exist and faith is irrational? Richard Dawkins, is an atheist, says the virgin birth, the resurrection, the raising of Lazarus, even the Old Testament miracles, all are freely used for religious propaganda and they are very effective with an audience of unsophisticates and children. Now, you've been insulted right there in case you didn't catch that. If you believe in miracles and the resurrection, you are unsophisticated, you're naive like a child. There is somewhat of a culture of prejudice 
that says smart people don't believe in God or the supernatural. On one of the news channels, uh, they found a question on a school test, and it was a multiple choice test. And, and I don't remember exactly the wording of it, but it was basically one person has an IQ of 120, and another has an IQ of 100. And one of the possible answers, the one with a 120 IQ will likely be an atheist. The one with a 100 IQ most likely will be a Christian. Planting the seed in the implication that smarter people don't believe in God. Do you feel adequately insulted yet? If you believe in God, you're unsophisticated, you're uh, naive like a child, and you have a lower IQ. Here are the facts. Of the 10 highest IQs in the world today, 6 are Christian. 9 are theists. They believe in a God. 9 out of 10 of the highest IQs in the world today believe in God. 60% of the smartest people in the world are Christians. Do you feel better? I feel a lot better. Anyway, I want to look at four questions this morning in your sermon notes page that deal with some of these issues about science and faith, if you want to follow along. Number one, first question, is science the only way to reliably know about something? Because science has made some amazing progress in certain fields, some people claim the scientific method or empirical verification is the only way to reliable knowledge. And that would mean, by the way, there's no such thing as moral knowledge or spiritual knowledge or personal knowledge. And this view is sometimes called scientism. Belief in science to be the ultimate determiner of truth, the answer to everything. Just like theism is belief in God, scientism, belief in science. Why is water boiling in the kettle? One person asked. Because burning gas is heating the water, someone says. Another person answers, well, it's because I want a cup of tea. Which answer is right? They both are. One's talking about non-personal causes. That's what science tends to do. The other talks in terms of a person and a purpose and intention. It's not a scientific explanation, but it is still true. Someone says human life is of great value. That's true, but you can't test it scientifically. You may have a brilliant physicist, a brilliant scientist, who cannot control his teenager. The scientific method will probably not solve his problem with his teenager. Science is limited. Scientism is a dogma that says any dimension that cannot be exhaustively explained by the scientific method doesn't exist or doesn't matter or is at best secondary or maybe just opinion. Now, as a side note here, Genesis 1 and 2 is not science. And we'll talk about it later, later on here. Genesis 1-2 is not about the mechanical functioning of the universe. It's talking about purpose, intention, and when you try to apply science to the Genesis account, you get all kinds of confusion. By the way, scientism itself is kind of like a religion. It's an ideology, which ironically cannot be proven or established by the scientific method. So scientism is faith. It's faith in science, which cannot be proven. So is science the only way to reliably know something? No, it's not. It's very important, of course, but it's not the only way. Number two, has science undermined belief in miracles? Rudolf Bultmann, a theologian, uh, wrote about 100 years ago, and he's a theologian, believes in God, but doesn't believe in miracles. He says, no matter what the evidence may say, miracles are irrational, no longer possible, meaningless, utterly inconceivable, and intolerable. Tell us what you really think. If there cannot be miracles, as Boltman says, there can be no resurrection, of course, and a lot of what we have in scriptures is unhistorical. One of the greatest minds to argue against miracles was an English skeptic named David Hume, and his point was that no one should believe in miracles because all of our experience suggests they don't happen. And 
we would have to agree, very few of us have seen a blind man touched and healed just like that. Very few of us have seen a storm calmed by a few words. Probably none of us have seen a resurrection from the dead. And Hume says that our experience is uniformly against miracles, so no one has experienced miracles, therefore they don't happen. And Hume conveniently ignores people who have experienced miracles. Walter Martin's one of the authors I read. He's brilliant, educated, he's very rational. He's seen miracles and participated in them. Missionaries tell us stories of supernatural interventions by God. Augustine wrote, in less than two years, he knew of over 70 recorded and verified instances of miracles in his city. And Augustine's considered one of the greatest minds ever. And Hume would come back and say, well, they're in such a minority. And the vast majority of people have not experienced miracles, so they do not happen. In other words, a rare event cannot have as much evidence as a common event. So on this side, you have 7 billion people who have never seen a miracle, and over this side, you have, let's say, 8,000 who have experienced a miracle. So because the numbers are so large on this side, this side really didn't experience them. They don't really happen. Let me respond in two ways. By definition, we would expect miracles to be infrequent. By definition, a miracle is an out-of-the-ordinary event. They are not common, and we would not expect 7 billion people to experience them. We would not expect to see them every day. Of course, they're in the minority. That's, how they, that's what they are, by definition. And second, just because something is infrequent, does that make it impossible? Let's say you buy a lottery ticket. Heaven forbid, I know you're smarter than that. You wouldn't do that. But let's say you do buy a lottery ticket. And uh, let's say that you win the lottery. Heaven forbid, if you won the lottery, it would ruin your life. But you already knew that. But anyway, let's say you buy a lottery ticket, you win the lottery, you better not believe it. Why not? Because there's millions of people who've never won a lottery. And if the millions over here lost the lottery and only, only one over here won, it cannot be. There must be another explanation because the vast majority of people don't win lotteries. That's the logic there. Richard Waitley made fun of Hume's ideas in a pamphlet called Historical Doubts Concerning the Existence of Napoleon Bonaparte. He traced all the amazing exploits of Napoleon, showed that they're so unprecedented, there was no one ever like him, that no intelligent, rational person could believe that such a man ever existed. We should put Napoleon in the same category as Paul Bunyan and Pecos Bill and Beavis and Butthead. There, there's no way Napoleon existed because there was never, one any, never anyone like him. Miracles do not contradict science, but they are outside of science, just like ethics and philosophy lies outside of science. Science is not the only knowledge there is to know. How about the resurrection? We have thousands of years of evidence that resurrections do not happen. Dead people do not rise from the dead. That's our experience. Is it a contradiction to say that people generally do not rise from the dead, but one man did, Jesus did? Christians believe both of these. We believe that normally people don't rise from the dead, right? But Jesus did rise from the dead, and those are not contradictory. In 2002, a well-respected Oxford University philosopher, professor named Richard Swinburne, used a broadly accepted probability theory to test the truth of the resurrection. Now, he did this at a high-profile gathering of philosophy professors at Yale University. New York Times carried the details. He got all this information together, plugged the numbers into a probability formula, and the result was a 97% probability that the resurrection of Jesus Christ really happened. There is good evidence and good reason to believe that miracles happen. 
Now, you can believe that Jesus did not rise from the dead. Many people do believe that. Uh, and there's very few people that have seen a resurrection. But the probability is that Jesus did rise when you look at the evidence. We could spend a whole sermon just on the resurrection. If there is a creator God who brought this universe into being, it is totally logical and rational to believe the miracles can happen and that God can raise the dead. So the next issue is, did God really create this universe? So the third question some might have, doesn't the Big Bang show that the universe didn't need God to create it? Now, about 100 years ago, many scientists just assumed that the universe always existed. They did not think there was a beginning to it. Uh, matter and space has always been here. They were eternal. Well, scientists now do not believe that for the most part. Matter is not eternal. The universe is actually about 13.798 billion years old, and it began with something that has been commonly called the Big Bang. And that's a major shift in thinking over the last 100 years. I was listening to the radio a couple of weeks ago, it was around the time of the Jewish New Year, the end of September, Rosh Hashanah. And according to the Jewish calendar, it's the year 5774. Christian calendar, of course, it's the year 2014. And one person tweeted into this radio show, we atheists have you all beat. We're celebrating 13.8 billion years. And the implication is that the Big Bang supports atheism. Well, the Big Bang Theory says the universe had a beginning, even time itself had a beginning. So let me ask you this, something appearing out of nothing, like the Big Bang purports, something appearing out of nothing is what? A miracle. Something just appearing, voila, you know, that's not normal, that's miraculous. Suppose you heard a loud bang, you ask, well, what made that bang? And I say nothing. You would not accept that. Something caused that bang. What is that something or someone? Something or someone caused this big bang, this universe. One eminent scientist, Sir Ed, Arthur Eddington, wrote, The beginning seems to present insuperable difficulties unless we agree to look at it, frankly, as supernatural. In other words, the universe appears to be a miraculous entity. The universe had to have a cause. How did it come about? As far as we can tell... Everything that exists has a cause. That, that's our experience. Everything has a cause or is contingent. They need other things in order to exist. Trees are contingent on air and seeds and water and dirt. And animals need plants and water and food. Nothing is eternal. Nothing is self-existing. Nothing comes into being or exists on its own. The second law of thermodynamics says everything's in a gradual state of entropy or decline. Everything is winding down, including you and me. Look at your high school yearbook picture and then look in a mirror. You are in entropy, and so am I. So the universe is winding down. It got wound up, the Big Bang, and now it's winding down. And the question is, if all is contingent on something else, and everything is gradual and fading and winding down, what started it all in the first place? What's that first cause? And some say it just happened. Just bang, out of nowhere, random chance. But our experience tells that nothing comes from nothing. Everything is contingent on something. There has to be some kind of a cause. So here's the options. Some say at the beginning, something came from nothing by random chance, and maybe that's the case. But as far as we can tell, that never happens. Nothing does, never does something come from nothing. The other option is a self-existing, self-sufficient first cause that is not contingent on anything else did it. It sounds like God. 
self-existing, self-sufficient, not contingent on anything else. That's God. Francis Collins was the head of the Human Genome Project and then the head of the National Institute of Health, and he used to be an atheist. And he writes, the existence of the Big Bang begs the question of what came before that and who or what was responsible. The sense of awe created by these realizations has caused more than a few agnostic scientists to sound downright theological. The Big Bang seems to be pointing us to God, not away from Him. Now, there's another matter about creation, and that's the anthropic principle. Anthropos is a Greek word for man. It says the universe seems to be fine-tuned in order to support life. This universe was designed for life. Now, I'm not a scientist, obviously, but as I understand it, the Big Bang was not a chaotic event. It was a very highly ordered event, required enormous amount of design and organization. And from the very moment of its inception, the universe had to be fine-tuned to this incomprehensible precision for the existence of life. Stephen Hawking calculated that at the rate of the universe's expansion one second after the Big Bang had been smaller than by one part in a hundred thousand million million. One part in a hundred thousand million million. I can't comprehend that. The universe would have collapsed into a fireball. Just that little change. Another scientist wrote, the odds against the initial conditions being suitable for the formation of stars is one followed by at least a thousand billion billion zeros. If the strength of gravity were changed by one part in one, followed by a hundred zeros, life could not develop. Just an infinitesimal change in gravity. And all in all, there is something like 15 constants whose values would have to be exactly what they are for the universe to support life. And oh, by the way, that turns out that's exactly what they are. Is it coincidence? Chance? Maybe? But I doubt it. It looks like the universe has been designed by some mind, by someone. And here's some of those constants put up on the screen for, that are necessary for life. The ratio of protons and electrons, mass density of the universe, velocity of light, initial uniformity of radiation, electromagnetic force constant, ratio of electron to proton mass, age of the universe, average distance between stars. I don't even know what half of those things are. But even the distance between the stars is necessary for life. And this is so striking... Back to Stephen Hawking, who is not a person of faith. He writes this. It would be very difficult to explain why the universe should have begun the way it did, except as the act of a God who intended to create beings like us. That's an amazing statement. He does not believe in God, but he says, it sure looks like it. It looks like a God did this. So has science proven that faith is irrational, God does not exist? If someone says that to you, I don't think they have, they have not looked into this. Not by a long shot. It seems to be confirming God. Number four, hasn't evolution disproved Genesis? There's an old joke, says a little boy comes to his dad and asks, Dad, where did human beings come from? And his dad says, well, we descended from apes. And the little boy goes to mom and says, Mom, where do human beings come from? And she said, we were created by God in God's image. And the boy says, but dad said we descended from apes. And mom says, well, I was talking about my side of the family. <laughs> and often people put up these two sides. You've got the science side, you've got the Genesis side, you've got a Genesis versus evolution. You know, it's one or the other, which is really unfortunate because science is not, Genesis is not a science book. Genesis was written to the people of that day. 
He wasn't writing scientists. It's an account to show that one God created the universe, not all these other gods fighting back the forces of chaos, which is what a lot of religions believed back then. In the ancient world, they weren't particularly concerned about the how of something got here from nothing. They were concerned about how order triumphed over chaos and really the why behind it. And that's what their stories were about. Now, different Christians interpret Genesis 1 and 2 differently. I'm not going to get too much into this. For my part, I do believe the best reading, looking at biblical terms, is that it's not about how it was created or how long it is, or really the role of mutation or natural selection, because those questions were not around back then. So it's not addressing them. Genesis was addressing questions that were then And it teaches the identity of human beings as one of the purposes of what's a human, our place in the cosmos, our standing before God, and of course that God is the creator of all. Therefore, it's very legitimate, I believe, for science to explore the how questions and how long. There is no contradiction between Genesis and science necessarily. There's a lot of questions and a lot of things we don't know. But Christians have gotten into trouble when they try to make the Bible into a science book. Let me ask you, did the sun rise this morning? Did the sun rise this morning? Yes. Scientifically, you are wrong. That is a false statement. The sun does not rise, right, and does not set. But we all know what we mean. The Bible talks about sun rising, the sun setting. Well, scientifically, it's not right. The Bible also talks about the four corners of the earth. Scientifically, that is not correct. They didn't intend to mean it that way. It wasn't intended as science. And often our bright young people go off to college, begin to read, and discover they were misinformed. And then they think they've got to choose between the Bible and science, one or the other. You don't. Sometimes the church misuses the Bible, makes it say things more than what it intended to say. And sometimes science misuses the science and makes science say more than it can legitimately say. For example, a few years ago a study found that chimpanzees share 99.4% DNA with human beings. One researcher said about this, we humans appear as only slightly remodeled chimpanzee-like apes. Now in Genesis, animals and man, mankind, were created the same day. And I think that's instructive, that there is a relationship between animal life and human life. But Genesis also says there is a qualitative difference between these humans and animals that were created on the sixth day. One guy wrote a book entitled The Third Chimpanzee. There are two ch- species of chimps, and the title is implying that we're the, third, we're the third species based on this DNA sharing. If you really believe that, would you have a chimpanzee babysit one of your children? Would you elect one to Congress? You may insert your own joke at this point. Would you allow your daughter to date a chimpanzee? You may insert a joke here if you want to. (laughs) Or marry one. Would you put a chimpanzee on trial for stealing? Would you hold him accountable for his behavior? See, what is human and what is simply another animal? We innately know there is a difference. You know, even those who don't believe there is a difference. There's something different, unique about humans. Now, to a certain extent, I believe in evolution. If someone asked, do you believe in evolution? I would ask, well, define it. What do you mean? If you're asking, do I believe that breeding dogs works? Yeah. Uh, If you're asking, do I believe that the finches on the Galapagos Islands have changed their beak size? Yes. New York Times actually had an article, this was several years ago now, but it said, if ignorant fundamentalist Christians who believe in creation knew about finches and dog breeding, they would know that evolution is true. 
Well, we know about dogs and finches, you know. Uh, there are changes within the species, at least. But that doesn't tell me where the finches and where the dogs came from in the first place. Do I believe there are certain limited forms of evolution? Yes, because the evidence is there. Do I believe the world came about by chance and random selection? No, because the evidence is not there. The main question is, is God the creator? Or did it happen by random selection and chance? Now, some of you may think, okay, but to me this is so vital. If science has disproved miracles, God, resurrection, Christianity is done. And I'm not going to waste my time with it. That's the struggle I went through 40 years ago. Am I going to waste my time preaching something that's just not worth it? The Bible says the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And if God exists, that is true. And there's no other way to live but to live for Him and by His guidance. Fear God is the beginning of wisdom. On the other hand, some would say the death of God is the beginning of wisdom. Only ignorant, unsophisticates, those with a lower IQ believe in God. And if you want to be wise, you have to give up belief in God. The death of God is the way to wisdom. There's really two options. God is ultimate or chance is ultimate. And it may be that it's all random chance, but I doubt it. The evidence favors some kind of God, some kind of being that designed this amazing universe. And I believe my faith in God is reasonable, it's more reasonable, and has more evidence, and I'm convinced that this is true, and because of that, I will give my life to it. If it's true, I'm not going to sit on the fence. I'm not going to be wishy-washy about this. I'm going to be 100% with God. And I want to challenge you. I want to exhort you. First of all, if you have doubts, I want you to pursue this. Look into it. I have books you can borrow. I've seen people's faith come alive when they delved into it. I've seen people's lives turned around when they realize this is true. So if you have doubts, don't back away. Pursue it. Study it. Look into it. And second of all, if you are convinced of this, which I think probably the majority of you are, how can anyone be half-hearted? How can we not be passionate and urgent about this and about sharing this with, with the world around us? If it is true, it is the only news worth spreading. It is the best news possible. Now, Mike mentioned at the end of the service, we're going to have prayer counselors. And uh, feel free to come and talk to them about this. I'm not sure they'll be prepared for some answers, but maybe you have a neighbor who needs this. You have a neighbor that says things like this. And pray, if nothing else, for our youth that they can make intelligent and solid decisions that will affect the rest of their lives. Some of them are going to go off to college and they're going to have some, probably some things challenging them. So we invite you to pray with them. Would you pray with me right now? Lord, uh, I stand in awe of you. Your power and your majesty is displayed in this amazing universe. Your fingerprints are everywhere. As Paul says, since the creation of the world, your eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. I want to thank you for opening my eyes 40 years ago. And I pray you'll open the eyes of everyone in this town, in this county, in this country, and in this world. And when we have friends who ask, may we be prepared to give an answer for the hope we have. It's in Jesus, our Savior, we pray. Amen.
Will you stand with us as we continue to sing together this morning? from Paul, Philippians 3, 7, and 8, but whatever were gains to me, I consider the loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. 